This is attorney Andy Markin telling attorney Mark J. Victor, we are the attorneys for freedom, and you, my friends, are listening to the Peace Radicals podcast. How's it going today, Mark? It's going great, man. It's another day on the planet. Life is good. We should be grateful and try and enjoy every minute. I'm excited about our guest today. Uh, but before we do that, if you've been following our podcast, you know how this podcast is going to start. Maybe you're clicking on this for the first time. What the heck is this whole live and let live movement all about? Mark, why don't you sum it up for somebody just clicking on the video? What's this whole live and let live thing? Okay, so live and let live is, as as we say on the website, liveandletlive.org, it's the world's only real peace movement. That's a big claim. How can we make such a claim? Well, first off, I was kind of shocked. I don't know if you're surprised about this. There really aren't any peace movements going on in the world, which is kind of shocking to me. I mean, have we given up on peace? I'm sure there's some other ones, but how can you be a real peace movement if you are not against aggression, right? At least initiating aggression. So uh, Live and Let Live is as it purports to be. If you like that slogan, live and let live, you're going to love the live and let live movement. So it revolves around a principle we call the live and let live principle. What does it mean? It means don't be an aggressor, right? What's an aggressor? Somebody who initiates force against another person or their property. If I hit you over the head or steal your stuff, I'm violating the rule. Somebody who engages in fraud, which is basically stealing your stuff through trickery and deceit or coercion. You know, if I'm sort of holding a gun to your head and saying, do this or do that, this isn't a voluntary thing. It also violates the live and let live rule. And then the final category is what we call basically putting other people in harm's way, creating a big risk of harm to another person or their property. Don't do that. That violates the live and let live rule. If you can refrain from doing those things, then you should be left alone. So another way of saying this is the law should be calibrated around the live and let live principle. So if you're violating that principle, you're acting illegally. If you're not violating that principle, well, you might be acting in a way that um, I think and other people might think is is uh, unreasonable, immoral, unhealthy, bad, unwarranted, or something along those lines. We may even try to talk you out of it, but it should be legal. That's the idea of trying to bring the vast majority of our ethics and morality out of the law. We can't bring it all out of the law, right? Even the live and let live principle is grounded in morality. But then there's the ethics side of the house, which is, do we have nothing to say about morality? No, I think still things should be said about morality, even if they're not part of the law. So we push what we call aspirational values. What we're talking about here are things we're encouraging other people to do to get to peace. Things like be open-minded and tolerant of other human beings. How about voluntarily kind and civil? Be civilized towards other people. Should we, if we disagree, that's okay. Let's agree to disagree. Let's do it in a civilized manner. Let's work on building high levels of trust with other human beings and being committed to facts and reason and rational judgments. Why do we care about this stuff? Because our goals in this space are to optimize human happiness while minimizing human suffering. And we're against making any of this part of the law. That's not what the law should be about. But nonetheless, we want to inspire people to act in ways that are consistent with a free world. 
And so that's really what Live and Let Live is about. We think the Live and Let Live rules should apply to all people equally. It should apply to all groups and corporations and governments. Nobody should get to violate the Live and Let Live principle. And that's it. Sort of a nutshell, maybe a bigger nutshell than we were open for. So but. you're telling me I can't just get around and find a loophole by forming a group, maybe if I call it a corporation or even a government, you're telling me that I can't violate this live and let live principle? Yeah, you know, I think this is a very important point that you raise because somehow people who agree, sometimes people who agree with the live and let live principle as applied to individuals somehow fall off the bandwagon. This is where we lose a lot of people, right? They, they can't understand. The average person might have a problem understanding this concept that just because you've grabbed a couple of other people or maybe a few thousand or million people and called yourself a group, that all of a sudden you're exempt from the live and let live principle. Well, we say, no, you're not. Yeah, and why would we ever want a person or a group to initiate force or fraud or coercion or do things that put us at substantial risk? So... Look, I like to say it in sort of a flippant, easy kind of way. Do whatever you want with your body, your property, your money, and your time, so long as you don't violate that rule. And that goes for all people, all groups, all corporations, all governments. Just don't violate that rule. If we could get there, we could have a civilized world. We could have we could raise standards of living, economically speaking, and we could have differences in our moral views, which we know we have now. That's okay. Um, but we're not going to be killing each other over it. We're not going to be um, it, trying to impose that by force on other people. We got minimum standards, and yeah, they're still connected to morality. Don't initiate force against another person. Convince them with your powers of persuasion. If your moral views or ethics are that good, bring a powerful argument and convince other reasonable, rational people to... Uh, to voluntarily adopt your moral views. That's what it's about. You don't use force to try to get people to act the way you want them to act. And Just- I, th- I think we're in store for some of those powerful moral arguments today with our guests, and I don't want to waste any more yeah. time. Let's dive right into it. So our guest today is Dr. Zudi Jasser. He is a physician. He's a veteran, um, and you're going to hear a little bit about his military background, perhaps. And also, very, very importantly, he's the president of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. And this is a group that my understanding is dedicated to the reformation of Islam and certain aspects of Islam. And um, I've read a few of his articles, and, and um, you might have seen him on TV. He's appeared on Fox um, and uh, other other news channels. And so, Dr. Jasser, welcome. And why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners? Well, it's great to be here, and uh, it's an honor to be part of your podcast. And uh, thanks for all that you do. Uh, the the uh, Live and Let Live movement uh, really is uh, right in par with what, we prime, what we've been trying to do. Uh, my family escaped Syria in the mid-60s. I was born a few months after they got here and uh, raised in a small town in Wisconsin, uh, went to uh, the Medical College of Wisconsin Medical School, was on a Navy scholarship, and um, basically, and I talk about this in my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, and uh, my family's history really uh, shaped who I am. I got to know my dad's father, Zudi Jasser, who uh, was a newspaper man in Syria, was a businessman, uh, had a vegetable oil company, and also uh, tried uh, to be one of the ministers uh, uh, when the French pulled out of Syria in 1948, uh, was a minister of interior. Syria had a fleeting attempt at democracy. It lasted three or four years. And then they had 20 different coups between 1952 and uh, 1963, uh, mostly bloodless coups because the people had no weapons. 
but ultimately in 1963, the Ba'athists took over, which is the Arabic term for the National Socialist Party, which are basically the Nazis of Syria. And Bashar now is running the uh, uh, country. Uh, his father, Hafiz, uh, was the president soon after my family escaped. But my grandfather was in and out of house arrest, was in jail for a number of years uh, uh, fighting for freedom. And uh, ultimately, my dad escaped uh, the day before he was supposed to graduate from medical school because they conscript you into the military uh, the day you leave there, the day you graduate. Uh, long story short, uh, I began to really appreciate the freedoms that we have in America. Uh, growing in a small town in Wisconsin, I never really had a conflict between my faith and my freedom, my country, my national identity. And that's why I wanted to serve in the military. I felt I could be more Muslim in America than I could in any Muslim-majority country. Mm. Now, if that doesn't make your head explode, I don't know what should. <laughs> and we'll talk about why I felt that way. Uh, but ultimately, even though I felt that way, I thought eventually the ideas—I realized I wasn't ignorant. I realized that the Islam that I practiced was— not the one that I heard of on most of the Middle Eastern television stations and, and through the governments in the Middle East. But yet, I thought that would just sort of work itself out over time. Then comes 9-11. Our country's attacked by, and, and I'm a doctor. I, most of my time I spend taking care of patients. And when we treat medicine, as you know, as a lawyer, if I only treated symptoms, I'd be in court most of the time. But if I treat disease, I will end up treating the symptom by treating the actual problem. Well, Al-Qaeda is a symptom. ISIS is a symptom. The Muslim Brotherhood, all these movements are symptoms of a bigger problem, which is Islamic stagnation and theocracy. So after 9-11, we formed the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, which is not an anti-terrorism organization, which I think is sort of like being a doctor who's anti-pain. You know, you've you got to treat diseases. We're anti-Islamist. And our focus is to, to basically defeat the idea of political Islam. And we'll walk through that, I'm sure, What's today. the idea of political Islam? So political Islam, you know, for those folks who grew up in the West, uh, it's the, no different than what the Church of England was doing in London or in the, in the old British uh, Empire, which is they, they had an establishment of their— beliefs through the church being established by government. So there's a complete marriage of uh, uh, theology, theocracy, religious identity, and national identity. So political Islam is the belief that when you form a political party, the platform of that party should be guided not by human ideas, but by a constitution which they believe should be our holy book. So the Qur'an, the religious scripture of Islam, no different than the Old Testament of Judaism, the Torah, or the New Testament of Christianity. To us, the Qur'an, to me, it's a personal religious scripture. To the Islamists, it's their constitution. To the Islamists, uh, the, the jurists of Islam become the only lawmakers in society, and they determine what is Islamic law or sharia. So political Islam is the belief that your national identity is to Islam, not to the state, but the Islamic state, that ultimately God rules the country, not human beings. Ultimately, the legal system is Islamic law, and the Constitution is the Quran. It sounds like you could summarize that position by simply saying that um, this is a position that church and state should be mostly merged, right? That um, is something that the United States has done in a lot of ways better than a lot of other countries by 
not completely keeping it separate. I don't think it's possible to keep it entirely separate, but for the most part, to have freedom of religion and freedom from religion. You have every right to have freedom of conscience here in the United States. And in a lot of ways, Zudi, you are really the... uh, the American dream success story for immigrants, right? I mean, you're you're one of the big scary immigrants from the Middle East who came to the United States and uh, made a great living and serve your community. You didn't make much of it, but I know um, because my wife is a doctor. I know you're a very well-respected doctor in this state. You're one of the better... Uh, respected doctors. I come across a lot of doctors. A lot of them know you. They all respect you. They have good things to say about you. You you contribute hugely to our community, not just by your profession, but I've known you a long time. You've got a very nice wife, great family, good kids. You are the American dream success story. You've come here and you've embraced American concepts, which didn't water down any of your religious beliefs, right? I mean, sounds like it enhanced them, right? Th- th- that th- really, that statement that you felt that you could practice, you could be a Muslim more in this country than in any other majority Muslim country, is pretty striking. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I, I'm, I'm humbled by those comments, and I'll, I'll tell you that, you know, one of the reasons I focused on bioethics in my medical training and and uh, what is the right thing to do in the practice and the treatment of patients is because of that sense that uh, ultimately, you know, in Islam, the Islam I learned, there is no clergy. Imam, as much as the Muslim Brotherhood wants it to believe that they're politicians, imam in Arabic actually only means teacher. They're supposed to be just like rabbis, teachers, not uh, politicians, heads of state, etc., And we can get into the example of the Prophet Muhammad. There's no doubt that in the 7th century when the Prophet Muhammad, uh, we believe, was given the message of Islam, that uh, he was not only the messenger of the word of God, but also the head of state, but also the uh, head of a military. So he wore many hats. But one of the biggest problems in comparing what I practice as a Muslim in Wisconsin when I grew up with the Islam of 7th century is the ahistorical approach to that, meaning that if you're going to hold Muslims per the example of the Prophet Muhammad accountable for secular, liberal, 21st century democracy, you have to compare them to what happened at the 7th century. What was, was there any liberal democracies in the 7th century? It was all dynasties all over the planet. It was, uh, you know, as Islam evolved into what Bernard Lewis described as the golden age of Judaism was when Muslims uh, were basically in, in, in control in northern Africa. It wasn't a democracy, but at the time there were 4,000 schools of Sharia, Islamic law, 4,000 schools of diversity. Today, Mark, there's four. So there has been a stagnation, and that rot began somewhere between the 10th and the 12th century. And most of the problems we're seeing today are some of the cancerous manifestations of hundreds of years of rot that is a historical arc that began to die off in the 13th, 15th century, punctuated by 400 years of Ottoman control, and we can get into some of that. But the bottom line is, is the last colonial era tried to put Western ideas. Some of it took hold, which my, my family loved as part of the French education that was in Syria. Uh, but if you talk uh, uh, to many those from India and elsewhere, they'll say the Brits might have helped somewhat in India, but also tried to impose Western foreign ideas that were not really able to take hold. So you take a colonial era and then put into the 20th century sort of this 
World War One, World War Two era that then all of a sudden they all went out from those countries and left a vacuum that propped up military dictatorships because most of the people didn't have weapons. And all of a sudden the Assads, the Saddam Husseins, the Gaddafis of the world took over and you had military dictatorships that completely decimated any schools of thought that were remaining. So that's the historical reality and the the not to give Muslims a pass because the bottom line is is if Islam is going to change the narrative of the Muslim Brotherhood and Al-Qaeda and really start to lift up examples of folks that are good, moral, humble individuals that believe in ultimate freedom, that, you know, I, I'll li- listen, the reason I'm a Muslim and I feel at home in America is because I think we're all going to be judged for what we do someday in the day of judgment. And if God really wants us to be judged, you have to live in a laboratory where I can drink alcohol, I can use drugs, I can actually then uh, decide what to do, treat my patient well. If I believe God's watching me, he's going to judge me on every moment of my day and how I treat people. That's what faith is. So when you were talking separation of church and state before, I think it's important that people realize that the debate about church and state today in America is very different than the one I want to have about Islam. Ours is where the Enlightenment was in Europe, where you had not only Martin Luther and and other reforms happening, but you had a complete debate about whether the church should be running government. That's the separation of church. It's mosque and state that needs to happen in Islam because the Islamic Republic of Iran, of Pakistan, of Saudi Arabia are all shades of basically theocracies. That's where Islam is today. Those are countries of hundreds of millions of people total that are basically producing billions of dollars of information that are warping the minds of many, many, if not most Muslims. And that's what we're pushing up against when we come to these countries here in the West. And why I have to do what I do is, you know, if God's going to judge me and I sat on my hands and played video games and did nothing while I was alive to help actually promote a message of Islam that's free and liberal— uh, I think I'll be judged poorly by what I did with the gift he gave me. Yeah, I think there's people probably watching or listening to this podcast right now, and their heads are exploding. They're saying, "Are you kidding me? You got Mark? You got a guy in in studio right now who's a religious Muslim, and he seems like a great guy. He's a well-respected doctor. He likes live and let live. He's pushing freedom. He's pushing." sort of enlightenment values, or at least the opportunity to live however you want. This isn't the Islam that I'm familiar with. And so they're probably saying, how's this the case? How many are there like you, Zudi? Are you you one in a million, or is this sort of the mainstream position? And by the way, before I forget, your organization, we need to get this out there because this is a great organization. I give money every month to your organization very proudly. And um, it's doing very, very important work. And so why don't you give out some information on how people get a hold of your organization, a little a little bit about what you guys do, how people can donate, and then help us understand, are, are you one in a million or, or are you in the mainstream and we just don't know about it? Well, our organization, the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, you can find us online at AIF Democracy, AIF like forum, democracy.org. And uh, it is uh, based – we have three or four major programs that we do. One is the Muslim Reform Movement. Uh, You know, while our organization has a mindset of focusing on political Islam and defeating 
Islamism and Advancing Liberty, we work with many different organizations that share this defeat Islamism idea. So we work with feminist groups. We work with gay rights groups. We work with secular groups that, uh, uh, you know, so we have a diverse umbrella that includes what we call the Muslim Reform Movement. And that movement now has taken off in, in Europe and in Canada and the U.S. It includes 25 different leaders of various small startup organizations. We're still, most of us still startups because, remember, we're fighting what I call petro-Islam. So the Saudis can, you know, sneeze and, and dump in $100 million into uh, organizations that try to put us out of business that say that they're the only arbiters of Islam and everybody else are Islamophobes and anti-Islam. That's what, uh, if, you, if you Google my name, uh, there will be some praise and some positivity. But most of the Islamic discussion is that I'm somehow a agent of the West and an apostate and I am a, a heretic and, and uh, I speak evil of uh, Muslims when in fact we're simply critical of leaders, we, uh, of the folks that have abrogated their responsibility as human beings that turn a blind eye to the crimes against humanity done by the Iranian regime or by the Pakistani regime or by the uh, uh, so-called NATO allies in Turkey that have imprisoned 20,000 professors in the last uh, few years that Erdogan did in Turkey. Yeah, and people shouldn't be confused about your commitment to Islam. Um, I, I remember years ago going to a debate about the Koran and you were – uh, I think people would be very hard-pressed to find another Muslim who is better acquainted with the tenets of the religion than you are, who are, I mean, you're very devoted, your family is very devoted. It's This is not a case of, uh, okay, Dr. Jasser's kind of turning against Islam, he's not a real Muslim or something like that. That's not the case at all. I don't want people to get the wrong impression here. You are very dedicated Muslim. You have strong faith. Your family has strong faith. You are a proud Muslim. Um, you're proud of your religion. You can go through the passages and quote them and talk about them with any, I would expect anybody who's Muslim. So this is not a case of you just don't understand the contours of the religion. You understand it just fine. You interpret it in a way that makes it compatible with people who are not necessarily Muslims. And it really comes down to a freedom issue, right? I mean, it really comes down to what it, what unites us is not religion. What unites us is our concepts that I feel very strongly that you get to feel very strongly about your religion and you feel very strongly that I get to make decisions for me. We should each allow the other to live at peace. That's what it is we're pushing here with the Live and Let Live movement. So maybe you can talk about what what kind of company are you in? Because I think a lot of people are just not a, you know, what you see on TV and what you hear are the small groups of radical crazy guys who are making the big noise, right? Um, but the non-Muslims, we're not hanging around in mosques and we don't know a lot of uh, maybe people who are Muslims, although I, I happen to have some in my social circle. But how, how, how rare is your position in Islam in America and then throughout the world? I think that you'll find that it's it's not as rare as you think. Certainly when it comes to the leadership, the folks running the mosques, running the Islamic organizations, if you were to Google Islam or Islamic or Muslim, right? Muslims are those who practice Islam. Islamic is something that we think is an adjective related to the religion. 
we are definitely, that's 90% of those are the theocrats and the Islamists that are running the place, that have the money, the power, and the religion. However, you talk about the 1.6 billion Muslims, 1.6 billion in the world, and we're talking about a quarter of the world's population. That's why, for those of your listeners and viewers out there that are not Muslim that say, God, you know, I like this Zudi guy, but it's his problem, right? You were saying you support us, right? Of course. And, and they, if you think this is only my problem as a Muslim— and you want to pat me on the back, a quarter of the world's population, if they continue to be run by Islamists, theocrats, who also work with the Chinas of the world, the Russias, the corrupt regimes of the world, I can tell you the West is in a minority. Just look at how the UN votes when they vote against Israel and, and other uh, issues regarding Western freedom. The Islamists with the red-green axis, the green being Islam, the red being the far-left communists, etc., they work together at the UN, but the Islamists are in control of the show. So the, the, the Western liberal thinkers, which I think are a plurality at least, if not a majority, how do I prove that to you? The Arab awakening happened in 2011, 2012. You had massive revolutions. Some of these governments were finally on their heels. Syria has proven that their Assad is back now after killing 600,000 and displacing half of his population out of the country, 10 million left out of 21 million. But you see that when elections happened, initially the Islamists won most of the elections. The Brotherhood won in Egypt. Uh, uh, the Al-Nahda, which is the Islamist party in Tunisia, won country after country because they were the only groups organized. The dictators, true to Marx's axiom, which is religion is the opium of the masses, fueled political Islam just like Assad. Why did the U.S. need to take out ISIS? Because Assad was never going to do it. It was the reason for legitimizing military control of his country by allowing this militant, grotesque organization to continue to function. It's the constant playbook of most of these Arab dictators and Islamist dictators is to sort of let radical groups grow and then they use them as a foil. The Saudis did it for a long time and still do it at times. So the bottom line is, is that if you're going to reform these things – you have to begin to work with organ. There's no military solution to any of this. Right. A quarter of the world's population will either end up swaying towards political theocracy or they're going to start to say, you know what? If you look in Iran, the women's movements are ripping off their hijabs. They are going in the streets using Western technology to communicate where the government can't see them. And, and we see in Tunisia, for example, after three years of the Brotherhood running, now they – ousted them through a democratic election. Tunisia is one of the silver linings, and it's still sort of teetering, but it's mm -hmm. still a silver lining of the Arab awakening. So there are huge shifts happening globally where the popular movements are not just Islamist. The debate really is about the revivalists versus the reformists. The revivalists want to bring back things the way the prophet did it and have an Islamic state and be the, you know, sort of bring back them as God on earth, you know, and we say in Arabic, Allah, God forbid. But the reformists want to say, you know what? The West has a lot to teach us. We use – the Saudis love to use medical science mm -hmm. when it advances. They love to use computer science. That's right. Why not use the advancements in political science? Yeah. So the advancement in political science is liberal democracy, Jeffersonian democracy, libertarianism, whatever you want to call it, that whether it's the Calvinists or whoever that have gone through sort of reformation, reformists in Islam, and many of us exist and are willing to have – I had a debate here locally against the head imam of the largest mosque in Arizona. 
It was two hours. It's online at our Muslim Liberty Project YouTube site at the American Islamic Forum. Take a look at it. It was about whether Islam needs reform. He spent an hour and 45 minutes telling folks who know me here in Arizona that I'm sort of corrupt and I'm just a Muslim Zionist uh, and working for the Mossad and all this other. He sounded like a crazy man. And I spent the hour and a half not attacking him, but saying, listen, this is the country you live in. Tell me why you think the Islam you're trying to bring back in the 7th century is better than the one we have here in America, which separates mosque and state. And he said, oh, we don't need to do that. We live by the laws of the land. We want to, uh, uh, yes, if Muslims are a majority, we would have an Islamic state, but we follow the laws. I say, oh, so you're an insurgency? You're basically telling Americans that when you're a minority, you follow the laws. But in governments, when you're a majority, you'd want to put in an Islamic state. And he said, that's democracy. I said, no, that's majoritocracy. That's right. not that's he, not he doesn't a understand. Repu- exactly. He doesn't understand what a constitutional and republic is about. And, and to your point before, now they won't have these debates with me anymore. We've had them in Stanford. I had one in Duke. And now it's hard to book any of them anymore because they realize 90% of the people, the 300 people at that debate that left – really came up, sent us notes and said, thank you. I didn't realize this imam really has no connection to understanding what America is all about. Right. So, Zudi, what, what's the case for if I'm a Muslim and I'm, I'm thinking about this whole live and let live thing and I'm thinking about my faith and my religion and I'm wondering, are they compatible or are they incompatible? What's the case that I can still be a good religious Muslim following all the mandates of the scriptures and everything else that makes one a good Muslim and yet still politically support a live and let live type of a position? What's the case that there's nothing in conflict here? That's the million-dollar question. It really is because my naysayers that are – for example, my non-Muslim naysayers here in the West that think – you know, they many, in, for example, in some of the hate movements will say that I'm dangerous because I make Americans think that Islam does have some uh, ability to reform when, in fact, it's the enemy of the West and all that kind of if stuff. If that's the case, we're in a lot of trouble. I know. Exactly. We're in a lot of trouble with over a, a bill, almost a billion and a half people. I, I refuse to accept that we got to be at war with a billion and a half people. So that's the thing is that either you choose you try to convert them. Or you try to find allies within that community that love their faith, that are orthodox. And I describe myself as orthodox even though the mosque leaders think I'm a flaming liberal, right? But I'm orthodox because the beliefs I believe in, whether it's fasting in Ramadan, praying five times a day, all these things, I practice them. I practice them in an OCD way. So to me, that's orthodox. Now, the, the the rejection of the hijab for women, the rejection of most of the laws that are considered criminal uh, uh, punishments in Islam, I reject completely the belief. The Quran, for example, says you should cut the hands of those who steal. Women get a half a vote of a man in a, in a Sharia court. These things I reject. So they say that I'm somehow some type of uh, buffet Muslim, that I pick and choose what I want. So the, again, back to your million-dollar question. What defines what is Islam? Who's Islam? Which Islam? Is it my Islam or the king of Saudi Arabia? There was a book of 500 most influential Muslims that was published by the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and West and Washington Beltway Islamic organizations. Uh, most of them were kings and, and, and imams that are on the payroll of most of these organizations. So 
who am I to say, you know, most of them will say that I'm not a Muslim. I pretend to be in order to make my way through American politics, but the reality is I don't represent anyone. So how does the regular American or the live and let live activists figure out which Muslims are real Muslims? You can't. That's the bottom answer. If you think if that's the bottom line, if you think that you can somehow know who it is and who it isn't, you can't. But it is up to Muslims, those of us who identify as Muslims, to begin to take back our faith. We have a website uh, and program called Take Back Islam, which is first you realize we have a, we need a 12-step program. <laughs> Most Muslims are in denial that we have a problem. Yeah. So first you get past the denial, then you say, "You know what? We can't just sit on our hands. We have to define ourselves as Muslims publicly. That's why if you look, some of these schools, et cetera, will call themselves cultural academies and whatever. They're sort of trying not to be public about them being Muslims. We have to be very public in order to take away the narrative that the Islamists have. Yes. So if you were to say, well, what defines a Muslim? We don't have a clergy. There's no confessional you'd go to. There's no catechism. There's no way in which to do it's – it's much more like Judaism than it is Christianity to mm-hmm. say you have to belong to a church. It's just – I could pray at a different mosque every day and I'd still be a Muslim. Mm-hmm. So what defines a Muslim? It's somebody who really believes that the Arabic script of the Quran is God's word. That's really the only uni- – if I've looked through all of intellectual Islam, Muslims believe that the Quranic script is God's word. Now, the interpretation of that is what has – cost millions of people their lives, if not more, and how we put that into action. Is it a personal pietistic belief or is it a document to be pushed upon other people so that they can't live and let live in a way that should be forced upon others? And that's the debate. But Muslim in Arabic means the submitter. Submitter to what? To God's word. Islam, contrary to the apologists, it doesn't mean peace. Islam actually means submitter. You your soul is at peace, which is why it's similar to the word salam, which means peace. Your soul is at peace when you submit to God. So therefore, I can tell you, just like the Enlightenment, there's going to be, and, I, and I'm not advocating war, but there's going to be a lot of bloodshed until we displace the theocrats in Iran and Pakistan and Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. They're not going to leave sort of you know, on their own devices. To, and, to your argument that Muslim, to, to be... To be a good practitioner of Islam is an individual experience rather than a group experience, rather yeah, than a hierarchical exactly. experience. It's kind of an interesting thing because you make that argument. I read in, in your article, you're basically saying – because you're saying you have to practice it on your own kind of a thing to experience it in your own individual way. But Christianity doesn't agree with that, right? It seems like popular Christianity is very hierarchical and structured and um, a lot of it has to do with group participation and church and getting together and um, ritual with other human beings and everything like that. There's kind of this weird catch-22 that uh, between the left and the right that Islam gets as well, which is basically that, you know, the the folks that you were talking about, your detractors that might call you dangerous yeah. for recognizing that there's a possibility that Islam can be brought into the 21st century, those people, I hear those people on the right critique Islam, and the critique goes something to the extent of, why is this religion taking forever to get up with the times? Christianity managed to reform and modernize, and we don't burn witches anymore, and we don't do all those outdated practices. Islam's just, it's not getting with the times, it's outdated, and it's resisting reform. 
But then on the left, the critique is, well, what do you mean you're trying to reform Islam? We have to leave it. It's a beautiful religion. It's perfect the way it is. You're, who are you in the Western world to tell them to reform? It's, it's an interesting catch-22. Yeah, I mean, first of all, let me preface my response to what you said by that. I fully realize that Muslims are in no place <laughs> to be criticizing anything regarding Christianity right now. We have uh, a much uh, bigger problems in our own house of Islam. But having said that, there are some things worth talking about. Uh, you know, we as as practitioners of our faith believe that Islam came to be as a faith. We'd be Christians if there weren't certain things where, you know, for example— we're allowed to intermarry Jews and Christians with Muslims because we believe we believe in the same God, the God of Abraham, mm -hmm. that ultimately um, we're actually told the more moderate interpretation of the Quran is that uh, we're told uh, uh, not – even if you marry a Jew or, an, or a Christian, you're not supposed to change their religion, that they, they thus have pathways to heaven similar to ours. So we're not exclusivist in that interpretation. So having said that, what changed in Christianity? There are some three or four basic things. One is original sin, the concept that uh, somehow in Christianity arose that Christians believe they were born sinful and needed salvation. Um, Islam rejects that. The concept of a trinity and also the concept that uh, ultimately uh, you have to uh, absolve your sins through Jesus rather than simply between you and God. And uh, this concept of needing baptism, original sin, trinity – those basic things are why Islam exists. Otherwise, we'd be Christian. So at the end of the day, this collectivist mindset, Islam actually at its core, if you believe that it came to correct a few of those things that Christianity deviated from and bring it back to actually some of the original monotheism of Judaism, not that Christianity is not monotheistic, but that ultimately there was a change in the monotheism to a trinity that Christianity believed in. That change really brought us back to the original, more Judaic interpretation, which is why Jews and Muslims actually share some more theology, actually, than Christianity and Islam do. Mm -hmm. But having said that, I think one of the most important things is the, the beautiful, what my grandfather in Syria taught me was that the reason the American government is so successful is that, number one, as de Tocqueville, he had read de Tocqueville, and he said, de Tocqueville says that it's a very religious society. You usually don't need dictatorships when people have religion and fear God so that they don't have to fear their government, number one. Number two, the reality um, is that that religion uh, is – the word Christian is not in the Constitution. It's not in the Declaration. That's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence because they didn't want to battle over the different diverse interpretations of what is and what is not Christian. And many of the founders were deists, and there's a whole discussion of that. So at the end of the day, one of, our, one of the leaders that I've been influenced by is Abdurrahman Wahid from Indonesia. And he wrote a book called um, – he wrote a book about why the Islamic State does not need to exist. And in the opening, he said you can have a state of Islam in your heart. But you never need an Islamic state because actually it negates Islam when you have a government that tells you this is a state of Islam versus what it is in your heart. There's got to be an interpretation, though, of, of the Quran that you would disagree with, right? You can imagine, I'm sure, an individual oh. interpretation where they interpret it to mean something that's inconsistent with, I mean, by even by, I mean, there's got to be an objectively wrong way to interpret it, right? Oh, 99% of the, of the billions of Qurans on the planet are translations that I disagree with. Mm. And that's why actually the people, my detractors also say that 
you know, if I read a translation, my father actually translated the Quran, and and my mom's father was a, a jurist in Syria as one, on the Supreme Court, a family court in Syria. So we come from a very intellectual family that understands many of these things. But at the end of the day, if you go to Saudi Arabia, for example, the the central place of Islam in Mecca, if you bring anything but the Saudi government translation, they will take it from you. They mm. inspect your books, they inspect your bags, and they will take... A, I took a, a moderate translation when I went as a diplomat on the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom, and they said, don't take in these translations. I have uh, 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 um, a couple translations that I carry, including my father's, and they they said that'll, that'll be confiscated wow. from me. So that's why, if you wonder why Islam has an advance, most of the translations that we have are not, the ones that are more moderate, are not being pushed by major publishing houses that uh, uh, right now, if you look on apps, on whether it's iOS or on Android, most of the apps of translations that we use are the top six, seven translations that are funded through Middle Eastern tyrannies, not the more westernized uh, translations. This sounds like really the root of the problem, because as you were saying earlier, um, there are passages in the Quran that say things like chop somebody's hand off for stealing. Yeah. And you reject those. Um, and you're free to reject them, I suppose. Um, but I suppose the reverse is also true, right? I mean, somebody, if I was a great Muslim scholar, I might say, hey, Zudi, you know, that passage, we both agree it's in there. Um, and this is in there because it's the word of God. Who are you to say to just delete that part? You know, you're making a judgment about the word of God and saying, well, I don't like the chopping of the hand in exchange or as a punishment for a theft, and therefore I delete it. And, and, and to kind of build on that, one of the reasons why people say Christianity has been more successful in Reformation is that Christians over the years have learned to disregard more of those passages, right? right? We don't look at the slavery, so we don't talk about the stoning people for eating shellfish. Right. So, I mean, so there's an so, argument here on the other side, I think, that your position has to overcome, that I'd like to overcome too, because I think we'd like to see a more, uh, you might say, moderate view of um, Islam, or maybe a more just compatible view of Islam with a free society. But so how do we address those kinds of issues where, and, and the same is true on the Christian side, right? I get into discussions with people who are uh, literalists with the Bible and say things like, uh, you know, if a man lies with another man, the punishment is death and, you know, stone uh, uh, kids with long hair and things like that. And they say, look, I may not like the rule, but it's not my rule. It's God's rule. Say what you will about Westboro Baptist Church. At least they're literalists. They're right? consistent. Yeah. yeah. So, the, again, this is the essence of the, argue, of the yeah. discussion. I will tell you that we can drill down in, in courses that would take hours and hours on every passage you would like to. And I can give you allegorical uh, interpretations. For example, the passage on severing the hands. My father's interpretation would tell you that it, the sever actually is not a physical severing, but it is a severing them from society, which would then account for putting somebody in prison. So to, to separate them from society, not to sever their arm from their body. There is a way to allegorically discuss that. Um, the same thing, there's a passage that Saudis interpret as do not take Jews and Christians as friends. My grandfather used to laugh and say, how can one chapter God says you can marry a Jew and a Christian? Right. On the other passage, it says, "Don't is he like schizophrenic or what's going on? The word that they're calling friends is awliya in Arabic. Awliya in 
Arabic and classical Arabic is not in translated friends. It's actually your legal sponsor in an Islamic court. That is it's a specific term. So yes, if I married a, a Catholic uh, a lady, if I went to an Islamic court, family court, she would have no standing. Right. So she doesn't have stand. That's what that means. It doesn't mean you disrespect them or treat them unequal. You can marry them, but so. Bottom line is one is I could find – and yes, these are words that are classical Arabic and my, I was blessed to have a father and grandparents that understood these classical terms and had more modern interpretations. But having said that – Isn't this just perfectly il- illustrative of the fact how important it is to just have an individualized interpretation of these things? I mean point very well taken yeah. that you have different reasons for rejecting some of the passages or interpreting them in different ways. But isn't this just more illustrative of why it's so important to not have some sort of dictated or imposed interpretation? But even – OK. So exactly. But even let's say we find a passage like the one that allows me to marry four wives. What do I do with that? I say, well, that that is a historical passage and doesn't apply anymore. How do I? What do I do with that? I would tell you, and and I remember I gave a speech in Florida in 2008, and the Islamist had, you know, the recording got out. It was we were public about it, and I ma- I made a statement to the folks that asked me about the Quran. I said, when Bin Laden re- he reads from the same Quran I do, but he doesn't get his faith from the Quran. The bottom line is, is I grew up in a conservative family in Wisconsin understood my values, created a superego when I was four to eight years old, and then that led to a conscience and a compass of what I felt was right and wrong. And then when I was a teenager, I started to learn Arabic. By the time I was in my 20s, then I started to read the Quran. So if you think that somehow this book, as, as wonderful as I think it is, and yes, I think it's the word of God, but if anyone thinks that that book is going to create monsters, it's, that's insane. That's complete insanity to think that scripture on a text, yes, we all will read things into it and get out of it what we bring to it. So my point to the audience was that bin Laden gets out of the Quran just what exactly what Assad and Khomeini and all these crazy uh, genocidal maniacs want to get out of it because they're genocidal maniacs. And the bottom line is, is that doesn't dismiss, yes, there's a lot of intellectual Tough work we have to do to reinterpret these things because the translations – by the way, it's not – 60 percent of radical ideas are from Quranic interpretations, but the – almost half of them are from what are considered passages of the sayings of the prophet. You can't reform Islam with most of the – it's called hadith. And if you look, most of the things like Hamas's charter says kill a Jew behind every stone. And many people on the internet say that comes from the Quran. Actually, no, it's from a passage of the saying of the prophet. And that passage, I believe, is a fabrication. You can't reform that, but it's a fabrication. Most uh, God tells us in the Quran, today I've completed your faith. So why would he say I've completed you? And this is another difference with Christianity in that in, the, in Islam, we believe that the, to the comma, the scripture God told us repeatedly that you cannot alter the scripture. You can interpret it in a human way, but you can't alter it. And because most of the debates and the and the deviation, if you will, from what God's original message happened because the scripture of the Old Testament, if you will, was written down, but then a lot of the New Testament was was not hard and and and, and clear on what was on paper. So therefore Islam said this is God's message. The only miracle we believe Muhammad had was the scripture itself. 
We believe Jesus actually had more miracles than Muhammad. He was able to heal the sick and do a lot of things. Muhammad could never do any of that except give us a scripture that we believe is the word of God. Now, the scripture is the word of God. The interpretation is man-made. So it seems like there are two completely different approaches here. Approach number one, and I'm not sure which one you take, but approach number one is, hey, guys, wouldn't it be great if we could take these various positions because we, we could have a— you know, a friendly society and get along with people and everything's fine. And here are the various interpretations. And here's how I can get to these interpretations in the Quran, which is one approach. Another approach is, look, it's not about what I like or what I don't like. It's about what God meant. And here's why I think he meant this instead of that. Which, which of the two approaches do you take? Because they seem completely different to me, right? One is saying, I like this outcome, therefore I'll, I'll subscribe to this interpretation. The other approach is, look, whatever God says, is if God says chop the hand off and he means get an ax out and chop the hand, who am I to disagree? I'm going to chop the hand. But there's another interpretation that for reasons independent of what I think is best, those reasons dictate that this is a sort of it's a suggestion to put somebody in jail rather than to chop their hands off as you suggested. And they seem radically different, right? If I'm pitching one or the other, they seem like completely different pitches. Well, it's interesting. Your movement, we started talking about how if people are going to subscribe to Live and Let Live, they can't sort of abandon the principles when they become a group. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So therefore, if I as a Muslim, it's interesting to me how some of the most fascist fam parents I've ever met most strict, you know, oppressive parents won't force their kids to pray. They say, oh, we can't force them to pray, right? Because that has to be, you know, from God. That they have to pray to God. That's the, their interaction, their communication with God. But yet they want to create these societies that nobody can breathe in, where they control speech. You can't say anything anti-Islam. You can't do any of this stuff. So they, it's just interesting that from a yeah. collective sense, yeah. they find this, this reason. So if you truly believe as a Muslim that God is going to judge you, whether you drink, whether you pray five times, whether you eat pork, all these things that are the rules of Islam, if you think God is going to judge those things— then you're only a Muslim if you think people have the freedom to make that choice. That's right. You're no longer a Muslim. You become actually a robotic theocrat mm -hmm. if you actually think that somehow your mandate is a, it's a cult. Islam becomes a cult then yeah. because once you join it, then you become part of this collective that wants to force your beliefs on everybody else, which is not Islam. It's the undermining of morality. It's 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 trying to apply morality to maybe an artificial intelligent being that has no choice, right? I mean, we wouldn't say this is a good robot or a bad robot. If, if all you're wired to do is the same thing, or it's because you're forced to do the same thing, even if you're, say, you're forced to pray, you shouldn't get any props from God for praying because you were forced to pray or you were forced to do the right thing. You shouldn't get any whatever rewards you get from, from acting appropriately because you were forced that way. So I completely understand what you're saying. And maybe it is some of this sort of disease of the brain that as an individual, we recognize that, hey, the kids got to, they got to pray because it's the right thing to do and they got to act appropriate ways for the right reasons. But a second we form a group, 
we we can now do completely different things. We can bash people over the head yeah. who don't do exactly what we want them to do. It's exactly the same kind of psychosis that people on an individual basis can say, of course I would never force anybody to do anything. But now that we've formed a group, the group can force them to do whatever. We can, instead of calling it theft, we could call it, say, taxation or some something completely different because the group is acting. And so, So the dilemma I have is I think the same one you have which is if you believe in an interpretation of the philosophy that is your guiding compass, in which it's very individualistic, in which it is truly between me and God into how I practice that, and I want to make sure I protect that personal, that personal aspect of it. How do I collectivize the people that agree with me without becoming a collectivist? You see what I mean? In that I want other Muslims that are liberal that believe in our liberty project at the American Islamic Forum, that believe in our reform movement at the Muslim Reform Movement, to to join us in this collective individual points of light, if you will, without making it into one spotlight that'll blind people. This well, is... you want to you want to hear and, and identify good ideas and say, hey, I think your interpretation is going to do the right thing towards reform. And I understand that the the concern I think you're talking about is, but we don't want to mandate those things, right? Because we don't want to exactly. We don't want to mandate it, and we don't want to be intolerant to other interpretations, and then make it into a megaphone of one idea, right? You know, so that's why to me I highlight, you know, it's interesting that sometimes my moderation in my faith becomes a problem because the most extreme voices are the ones, you know, that's why you hear mostly, for example, of, uh, I don't know what examples to use, but there are folks that are more on the fringes of faith that might have just left or on their way to leaving the faith or those who might be more extreme or whatever it is that get most of the attention instead of those who are pretty conservative and humble in their approach to ideas, it's it's harder to get the attention that, hey, listen, there are Muslims that that uh, are not all about sort of pushing the extremes, if you will. Yeah, I think the word collectivism um, gets a bit of an unfair treatment. I, I'm not anti-collectivist at all. The issue isn't whether we're working together. The issue is whether we're forced to work together or not, right? Forced collectivism. You know, it's like the position we take in the Live and Let Live movement towards socialism. We're not anti-socialism. You have every right to be a socialist. If uh, competent adults want to get together and live on a commune together and put all of their resources together and pay whatever mutually decided bills they want to pay together, absolutely no problem. There's nothing inconsistent but, but, until they want to drag somebody in who doesn't want to be part but of But, Mark, it. let me push back on that a, a little bit because I think – so I talk to so many parents that just come up to us and say, listen, we love what you're doing. Please tell me how to, you know, but I'm not going to. Look what happens to you. You get attacked by every organization in the country there. You know, uh, I have had to get sick. Al-Qaeda in Syria put out a web page about my family in 2013. So, mm. I mean, this is this is sort of the level of the battle we're at. So they're like, I'm not doing that. And I look at them. I say, you're raising your kids to identify as Muslims, right? And they'll say, oh, yeah, Absolutely. I say, well, what are they? What are they? Where are they going to get these values from, if not from organizations that start to embody and, and fuel the ability to believe these things? And I say, well, if you don't identify, if you want to identify them as such, it's going to take some work in order to believe that you can advocate for these ideas. Yeah, I'm not sure how this is a pushback on what I was saying because all I was saying was that. 
Uh, people can form groups and collectives all they like. No problem at all. The only issue is they shouldn't be forced to join a collective uh, yeah, if I'm they sorry, choose not to. I it, didn't finish my thought because my point was is was going to be that many times you go up to groups and they don't know why they're there. Sometimes they'll say, "Yes, we're we're you know we're for this," but yet they can't articulate. So the problem we have. One of the biggest problems, I think, in the Muslim community globally is ignorance, illiteracy, uh, a lack of – I mean, if you look at the Arabic of the Quran, out of the 1.6 billion people, 300 million speak Arabic. That's speak Arabic, okay? Of those 300 million, only a few percent of them speak the Arabic of the Quran, which is a classical old Arabic. The common Arabic – if you watch Arabic TV, my, my father used to tell me it was constantly becoming worse. It's a very difficult language. It's one of the longest courses in the State Department and others' intelligence. It's like Chinese as far as Mandarin. It takes just as long to learn. So the so, majority of Muslims are relying upon the interpretations of the people that they exactly. see as the leaders in the hierarchy. So that's my fear of collectivism, the long story short. Which is probably, is that, which is probably the same critique. You could give towards Christianity. I think probably most Christians get their interpretations. But this isn't from a problem preachers. of collectivism. This is just a problem of joining the wrong group, right? I mean, <laughs> but what if you have all these joiners that can't articulate why they're in it? That can't. That don't have the the basis understanding of America. They see America in the negative lens of the dictatorships that painted us as sort of invaders and colonialists and all these things. They don't see it as Jeffersonian ideas that that really is the the you know, uh, uh, America that I loved. I mean, my grandfather used to tell me the special sauce in America is not only its constitution, that's a piece of paper, but it's the fact that you have a culture that believes that government, a civilian government, gives orders and the mili to the military, that the military does not run the show. That's right. That simple thing was the reason the Middle East has been a disaster you know, pardon my French, a hellhole in most of these governments because of the disaster that that is the military regimes. So that little special sauce is something that most Muslims actually as immigrants, if they don't meet and talk to the right people, are never going to understand. There are many folks that come here for economic reasons. Mm -hmm. Families like mine that came here for political reasons, I think, are very different because they came here and understood in America what it was, the special sauce that was not only the Constitution, but the civilian control, the separation of powers yep. that exists between the, as you could talk Critical. better than I could. Critical. All these things don't exist where they came from. And they see America as just, oh, this democratic Zionist entity that was full of conspiracy theories. Well, I, I'm not often in a position to defend collectivist collectivism <laughs> but in this case i will it's still not a problem of collectivism in my view this is a problem of ignorance yeah, right exactly and and that's why we're doing the things we're doing and that's why you're doing the things you're doing i think we should um pause just for a second and i, I wanted to mention this early on and I, I, you gave you reminded me but the stuff that you're doing isn't without cost to you personally and risk to you personally as you just pointed out and so um, this does, in my view, make you somewhat of a hero for what you're doing. And, and, and I don't say that lightly. I mean, you're dealing with a very serious problem. You are, I don't want to say uniquely situated, but I can't stand up and make this case. I'm not, I, I don't understand the religion. I'm not Muslim. I don't know the Quran. Your, your skin's also the wrong color in most yes, people's eyes. Yes, unfortunately. But you're in a great position to stand up and make a really critical unbelievably indispensable argument that needs to be made right now at risk to yourself. And so 
Um, yeah, that makes what you're doing. This is part of the reason. I mean, I don't donate a ton of money, but I'm glad I give something to your organization because what you're doing, and there, there are not many groups that I think are important enough to put money into besides live and let live, but yours is one of the very few of those because really we're trying to do the same types of things, right? You're you're more aligning your message to the to the Muslims or, or dare I say the somewhat ignorant Muslims who don't understand the benefits of a constitutional republic, liberal democracy, however you want to describe it, because they, they're not educated about it. They don't understand. They don't think that their faith, as they practice it, is entirely compatible with a free society. So long as you have a real free society. Because, you know, there's there's pushback on both sides of this, right? There are people in the religious community who fear that the government is going to, in some way, restrict their ability to freely exercise their religion. The founders of our country thought it was important enough to put it right in the First Amendment. It is an issue. This is a two-way street. In a free world, you have every right to practice your religion. As I like to say, do whatever the heck you want to do as long as you don't violate that rule. If your religion requires you to initiate force against someone else, then I would say too bad. Find a different religion because we're going to stop you from doing that. Uh, well, you know, thank you for that. I, I mean, yes, maybe the key that I'm trying to turn is one on Islamic reform, and that's what is getting all the the – you know, the swords and the bullets uh, aimed at us. Uh, but at the end of the day, I'm actually not doing this for my faith. Um, because if you are, as a Muslim, if you believe God's faith is Islam as a Muslim, then that's his faith. He, it'll fix itself. He'll fix it if necessary. But that doesn't need me. So why am I doing this? I think the key turning is Islamic reform. But Western democracy, ideas of live and let live, will not exist if Islamic theocracy and theocratic huge movements – I mean I'm not talking about – this is the part that really just eats my gourd when I talk – I've testified to Congress many times and folks on the – I've had a, a, a Catholic congresswoman from California tell me under testimony. She said, who are you? Are you an expert in Islamic law? What are you doing here? She said, I'm Catholic. I would never testify about the Catholic Church's position on on uh, anything related to things that you're talking about regarding terrorism and et cetera. I looked at her and said, I can't believe you're telling me this in the halls of a Congress formed on a battle against theocracy. You literally don't understand the own halls in which you are representing your people in, which is the laity pushed back against theocrats. And it wasn't the theocrats fixing themselves. No power structure ever fixes itself. Right. It needs to be fixed from outside, but by folks that have credibility internally. So no, for me, it's not about Islam. It's about America. Yeah. It's about Western democracy and, and also my kids and that I want – and I wrote a letter to my kids at the end of the book, Battle for the Soul of Islam, and I told them, you know, listen, this – I want you to feel comfortable with your – I mean there's nothing stronger. Perhaps maybe love is stronger, but national identity. When I served in the Navy, your sense of duty to country is, is extremely strong. And the Islamists figured that out because they married duty to country to duty to faith yeah. and created Islamist movements of al-Qaeda, et cetera, that their flag is green with the words of God on it, et cetera. That – until we defeat that idea, I can tell you Turkey is part of NATO. But yet when they took troops and wiped out Kurds in Syria a couple years ago, they filmed jihadi films. 
So it wasn't about their secular democracy. Turkey is no longer a secular democracy thanks to Erdogan. It is quickly becoming a, a neo-Ottoman theocracy. Well, this, this issue that you just identified is why a lot of people feel that Islam is a particularly bad kind of threat as opposed to other religions in the world, that they've kind of fused the, the kind of, um, I guess, stereotypical uh, Islamic terrorist is one, uh, at least in the eyes of Americans, that believes if he blows himself up or sacrifices his life in any way possible to do as much damage or harm to uh, outside forces as possible, he'll be rewarded. And he holds a good faith, legitimate belief that he's going to go to this so, wonderful paradise and everything like that. So this is why when we talk to kids, our 15 to 30 group of our Muslim Liberty Project, on the one hand, you saw tons of billions of dollars dumped into counterterrorism programs that tried to teach kids that, oh, it's better if you do blue jeans and rock music and rap music and all this kind of stuff. This is bad. Imagine trying to defeat drug use by continuing to tell kids drugs are bad, drugs are bad. It doesn't work. So how do you do it? You give them something else that they want to live for, right? So I, in our program, I, I, we articulate with the kids, why would I as a Muslim, as an American – want to die for this country, sign up to die for the country, but I would never want to die for Islam. And then we have a discussion about that. Because if you live in a country where the citizens believe in creating a collective entity that works, you have to have rules that you want to protect. Mm -hmm. And that protection gives you the freedom to be Muslim. Uh, Elijah Esbegovich wrote in his book, he said he was never more Muslim than when he was in solitary confinement under Tito. For 15 years, this guy sat in a prison cell and he said all he had was God. That's it. All he could do is think about God and his religion because he had absolutely no freedoms. So therefore, you don't need freedom to be Muslim or Islamic. You have God. You always will have God, no matter how many f rights they take away from you. But to be human and create poetry, what differentiates us, and Izbegovic talks about this, that he said what differentiates us from animals is the ability to create. We can create poetry, music, uh, uh, new ideas. That ability to be human, part of being Muslim, needs a free government that doesn't push any Islam or any faith on you. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the interpretation here in the in the um, example that I just provided is the problem, though, right? If I if I believed wholeheartedly right now that I that blowing myself up would get me an eternity eternity in paradise, if I held that good faith belief in my heart, um, I would go blow myself up. I, I don't do that because I don't believe that. But if people live in a society such that they're conditioned to hold those beliefs, that's the problem, right? I mean, this isn't just a pick on Islam either. There are some extremely violent um, uh, practices and admonitions in the Bible, right? Like if we were to take, take, put the same lens on Christianity. But the critics of Islam, I think, a lot of the critics, especially folks on the right in America, believe that there's something special about Islam that makes it particularly dangerous, that it has built into this this kind of eternal reward component and it and encourages um, violence in this way and rewards you for it. I mean, is that just a is, is that true in your interpretation that that Islam has a particular twinge towards this when interpreted by bad actors? Well, the <laughs> That's You're going to say it's, it's not Islam. It's, it's the theocracy that is teaching people about Islam in that country. Well, why don't I, we have the same but, – but, but to that, why don't we have the same problem with Christianity? Yeah, because, because the, the historical branding is at a different time in history. Yep. 30 million – no, I'm sorry. Was it – yeah, 30 million people I think died 
Nine million people died between in the early, in the Thirty Years' War in the Enlightenment period. I think fifteenth, sixteenth century, early fifteen hundreds. So millions of people can die thinking that they're going to be martyrs, etc. So the concept of martyrdom, Islam, is not does not have a monopoly on. Mm. Um, it's been late to the game to reform. That's what. See, that's the crit- that's, that's the issue. The, well, that's I mean, okay, so Islam is fourteen hundred and fifty years old right now. Fourteen hundred and forty years old. Yeah. Judaism, I think, went through a major reformation at about that age. Christianity, 14, 1500s went through that. So in its historical arc, it may not be. Certainly today when information age, it can happen a lot more quickly than yeah. it has been happening. I do think, though, there I, I would be – I would be – I don't want to say dishonest, but it would be false for me not to acknowledge what you said. The brand of Islam, the brand of jihad – I have good friends with their first name is jihad. To think that their mom wanted to name them holy war is absurd. Mm. But the brand of jihad in the 20th century and 21st is completely dominated by folks who believe in violent imposition of Islam of their Islamic interpretation. Mm. So there's no doubt that the current bandwidth that is Islam globally is dominated by folks that that glorify. I mean, heck, the Palestinian movement pays families for suicide bombers. They will give them scholarships to their other kids that didn't kill themselves. I mean, this is a systemic. You go to Pakistan and they, they, they do slaps on a wrist for honor killings that a brother kills his sister who he thinks was dishonoring the family. Mm-hmm. And they slap him on the wrist with a little bit of a punishment versus uh, uh, if somebody actually says something against Islam, then they put them in, in prison. So the, the laws against blasphemy, free speech, apostasy, people who leave the faith are tortured. I mean, all across. So you say, is it the recipe? I would tell you that as a scientist, if the Islamic recipe truly taught this, I think the world would have perished a long time ago. Because as the Islamic history arc, you had hundreds and hundreds of years in which Islam was the place for the world to go to, yeah. to, to study Many different Mathematics, sciences, cosmology, uh, uh, science so in math, every field, medicine. Yeah. And right now, you can't find a single product worth selling anywhere at a dollar store that's produced in most Islamic countries, other than oil that's not their product that comes from under the ground. So the free markets have been significantly affected by the fact that these are mostly tyrannies. And I think you need a free market of ideas also within the Islamic faith itself. And then that'll liberate. That's why I tell my our supporters that are non-Muslim, this is a great investment. I mean, eventually, you know, Foundations Atlas does this in Muslim countries all over the world. And I think you will find, for example, Muhammad, uh, um, what was his name? He won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2004. What was he doing? He was giving microloans to women in Bangladesh, in Indonesia, and, and Pakistan. By giving them $10,000, they would start their own business and then tell their brothers, their uncles, and the men in their family that their interpretation of the Quran was wrong. They then became economic. So the key was economic independence. Yep. To Islamic reform. And as I recall, the default rate on those loans was very low. Exactly. Very low. Yeah, but just, your your point is an excellent one, which is that non-Muslims should see this as an excellent investment. Anybody who understands the nature of commerce and how it's not a zero-sum game out there in the world, and that the more trading partners we have, the more innovation we have around the world, eventually will come back to us this, and improve. This us. should be an an obvious point. This should be a no-brainer. At this, I mean, what you said 
that, you know, there's not a product made in the Muslim world worth selling at the dollar store. What does that tell us about standard of living, right? What does that tell us about applying free market principles and freedom generally in, in every sphere, how that raises standards of living everywhere? I mean, just, I can't believe we even got to make this argument today. I, I remember back in the, it was at the, the 80s when things were looking different, right? The Soviet Union was in chaos, the uh, the wall fell between what was East and West Germany, and we felt like, okay, we've won this thing. It's clear now that free markets work better than controlled markets, and yet here we are. You don't again. have to go back to the 1980s, North and South Korea. Take a look at the difference there. China and Taiwan. Take a look at the difference there. Every I know, this, I know. Uh, examples uh, over of this and over, you can look at what's happened in Singapore, what's happened in Hong Kong. You know, free markets raise standards of living. Period. And so why? Why we can't seem to get this across to certain parts of the world? Again, it's it all revolves around ignorance. It's and it's interesting. One of the other threats I've had over the last years was when we we wrote a piece, a press release, condemning this new Zakat Foundation. There was a, a fund about Zakat. Zakat in Arabic means uh, charity, uh, like sadaka and and uh, the Hebrew tradition, Hebrew language, mm-hmm. and. We said, these are the folks, this this wanted to be a, bill, a, a trillion dollar fund to funnel charity for Muslim countries to places that needed it. Well, we exposed that a lot of the folks that were the board of this fund were actually pretty radical Sharia theologians, the, theocrats, if you will. And they then sent us a, a cease and desist and all this kind of stuff, and it was just it was just crazy. Bottom line, though, my point about this is the fact that, you know, the the... Uh, um, they're very threatened by the fact that Muslims might want to take away their power. Now, in Islam, they create these funds because interest supposedly is forbidden, that you can't have a fixed production of interest, that there needs to be some risk. Well, a moderate interpretation of that is that uh, you actually need to share in the risk that you would undergo in business investments, et cetera, that banks can't sort of be just sort of getting interest sitting back and not having risk, that somehow you share in that as partners. Um, we talk about in paying our, our charity. In Islam, the charity you pay is 2.5% of your assets. So if you spend it all, you actually don't pay that much risk, that much uh, uh, charity. But if you save it all in your bank, you have a lot of charity to pay. Yeah. That's all done volitionally, not through coercion. But the bottom line is, is to me, that's an incentive for free markets, is that it's telling you to dump your money back into society and not hoard it, which I think shows you that a lot of these socialist movements that are part of Islamists are just convenience. It has nothing to do with actual modern interpretations of Islam. Um, Zudi, I wanted to circle back around to something because you mentioned it at the beginning of the show. It sounds like we have at least some reason for optimism that these things are moving in the right direction, right? You mentioned, like, for example, people are starting, because of the invasion of technology, whether these theocrats want it in their country or not, people are doing things kind of out of the surveillance of their theocrats and kind of um, the – if they get their opportunity – for innovation, people generally take it. People want to live better standards of, of living. People want better lives. Do we have reason for optimism here? Well, I'm always optimistic. I'm a doctor, right? I mean, I, I would you ever want to see a physician that took care of you that told you that was oh, this looks that bad. I don't this know. looks bad. You're going to be sick. <laughs> you're not going to make it. No, but uh, you know, I think ultimately, um, it's like treating cancer. A lot of patients 
ultimately will get cured of their cancer but get a lot sicker before they get better. And I do think that the Muslim world, a majority if you will, needs to go through some chemotherapy. Uh, there will be uh, – I'll use Afghanistan as an example. Believe it or not, as painful as the debacle was watching the way militarily we withdrew from there two months ago, the way we – you know, it was completely mishandled. It could have been done so many different ways. The silver lining, regardless of where you are politically in America, you realize there's no military solution to Afghanistan's problems with the Taliban. Now we have terrorists running a government. Mm -hmm. We allowed a coup to happen. Fine. After running it for 20 years, you realize we can't fix it. So first step, we're, now America is going through our 12-step program. The first step is to realize that we wasted tons of lives and, and treasure on nonsense that was not ours to fix over there, right? I myself, by the way, have evolved in some of these positions. I, I was supporter of the Iraq War and things like that. So, but I've evolved. I, I understand. You know, I'm, I'm learning too. Good for you. And I just want to point out, I that makes me respect you much more. The yep. fact that you're able to, to get new data and change yeah. your position. Yep. So on I totally. realize there's no military solution. So the silver lining here is that okay. So now. Are we just going to sort of keep using the SEALs and, and berets and others to, to do sort of surgical actions every time al-Qaeda pops up? Or are we going to actually help through civil society like we did with Radio Free Europe and the Cold War and others? We never shot a bullet against the Soviets, and yet there were maybe some proxy wars. But the bottom line is, is we ultimately fought communism. Mm -hmm. And we need to start doing the same thing and not be too fearful to say that Islamism is the problem. And Muslims that practice in Islam that's in synergy with Western liberty and the live and let live movement are the ones we want to support. Mm -hmm. Love it. We're out of time, gentlemen. Um, but before we go, uh, Zudi, if you could please just let our listeners know where they can find your work, where they can donate, where they can go and mm -hmm. learn more about this uh, movement of yours. So please, please join us. And uh, uh, no matter what your faith extraction is, uh, uh, we want to live together in freedom. Our website is AIFdemocracy.org. And our reform movement, which is a larger umbrella organization, is MuslimReformMovement.org. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, -S -S -E and also at Reform This Radio. I have a podcast, and it's called Reform This. On uh, It's on the Blaze uh, Radio Network. Awesome. Okay, it's been an awesome conversation, guys. That was a wonderful. I mean, we went on so many great subjects, and yeah, I feel like we could have gone even further deeper. Uh, un so unbelievable, and I mean, I, I really feel like we're sitting here with a, a real American hero, a guy that's that's putting it out there. He's got some. He's taken on risk. He's making tough arguments. He's uh, facing tough odds, but he's doing a job that needs to be done. Yeah, and he's in a, and he's in a position to do it, and, and we certainly support him. And we want to help in any way we can. And this is a great American sitting with Thanks. us. And I would just want to thank you publicly for everything that you're doing. I think it's it's absolutely critical. And um, you have my support and my respect. And uh, I'm just very thankful for everything you do. And, and really thankful that you came on our show and that you're part of our Live and Let Live crowd, too. It's an honor. I'm that's, blessed to know you. Thank that's you. That's right. Once again, go to Zudi's uh, website, donate. Um, also go to liveandletlive.org for this podcast and many more. You'll find a lot of great projects that we're working on. We've got some great events coming up. Another chapter just popped up today. Where? In Spain? Dude, just today 
we picked up a chapter in Spain and one in Colombia. Wow, that's we got so one, cool. We got ch- people want, jumping up, want to do chapters in the UK, in Italy, and uh, France, I think, is going to have a chapter so here awesome. soon. And, yeah. Join the movement, guys. Um, hop on there. Learn how you can start a chapter in your area. We're looking for chapter leaders. We have Zoom meetings. We have monthly meetings, the leaders' meetings. Get involved. Don't sit idly. Be part of the solution, not the problem. And uh, keep an eye on the movement because we're going big places. Until next time, my friends, this has been Attorney Andy Markintel, Attorney Mark Victor, and our guest, Zudi Jasser. We're the Peace Radicals. Peace!